You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. So today we're joined by Dr. Paul Zak. Uh, Paul is a professor of economics at Claremont Graduate University. He's also a neuroeconomist and an author of some awesome research in the, the topic of trust and building high-performance organizations. He's uh, written some, some awesome books, and that's what's uh, prompted me to, to reach out to Paul, but The Moral Molecule as well as Trust Factor. And uh, Paul, really appreciate uh, what you've done for the, the science of trust and, and educating folks like myself, but uh, man, I appreciate your time. appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us a little bit about the research that you've done and sharing your insights. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Paul, can we start just by sharing, now, you know, just have, have you share, why did you write Trust Factor? Or why did you, or how did you get into the science of trust? Mm-hmm. So, a couple things. Uh, the science of trust really uh, came out of work uh, shown in the late 90s that trust uh, was a kind of a key component of um, understanding why countries are rich or poor. So uh, in the late 90s, contributed that literature to identify the pathways through which trust improves economic performance. And uh, inevitably, people would ask us, well, you know, for this is comparing countries. So different institutional structures, formal, informal institutions, social structures. And that's what we identified why trust is high in Denmark and low in Colombia. Uh, and inevitably, people say, well, in a given country, why do two strangers ever trust each other? I said, well, you know, different environments, you know, I kind of pass it off. And then, uh, as you know, as a researcher, you know, you, you go home one day and you feel like I got to take a shower. Like, I really am not a trust expert. If I can't answer the most basic question, which is, if I see you on the street, Mark, do I think you're a threat or do I think you're a potential collaborator? And that's a really good question. And the only reason that humans can live in these societies with these cities, Kansas City, New York, with strangers around us, if I, if I have something in my head saying, Mark trustworthy and uh, Bill not, right? Roughly, it doesn't have to be perfect. So we uh, started, started a, a, a long research program into identifying the underlying uh, neurochemicals that are the foundation for trust. So something must tell me that you're safe, right? Some, so uh, neurochemicals are a very effective way to start uh, understanding how brain networks activate. I can measure neurochemicals. I can manipulate neurochemicals. And through this, developed a protocol to measure for the first time the brain's acute production of this neurochemical oxytocin, which is a key part of this signaling pathway. And did a lot of work on oxytocin. And the, the, to answer the second question, at some point, um, or you know, companies started coming to my lab, knocking on the door and saying, gosh, we think trust is important for our company. You're supposed to be the trust expert can you tell us how to raise trust? And the protocol I developed to measure oxytocin involves rapid blood draws. And I would say, well, yeah, we have this assay. I can take blood from your employees and these guys' faces would turn white. Like, no, 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 we can't do that. So then I started thinking, okay, I'm a, quote, trust expert. How come I cannot identify the underlying factors that you should measure and manage to improve trust in your organization? So we started a, about a 10-year program in which we first went into organizations and just observed people talk to them, saw how they work, saw how much time they spent in groups, how much time they spent alone, how they interacted. And then we ran experiments with permission, which we drew blood and measured brain activity in multiple ways and related that to their productivity. And then from that derived some core principles and an underlying survey. And uh, if listeners want to go to ofactor.com, you can try the survey for free so that individuals can measure trust without blood draws 
and can identify these factors that are foundation for trust that if you can measure them, you can manage them for higher trust. And as we showed, trust is a huge lever for performance. Why would they do that? More data, right? More data is always good. So, um, uh, and I, I'm not fan financially compensated by them. So, uh, you know, they built the software. I gave them a free license and super cool when someone takes your research and turns it into a useful product. And a lot of companies now use this um, to optimize how you organize the human. So we think in a lot in business about optimizing the supply chain, optimizing, uh, you know, how we uh, manage customers, optimizing uh, whatever. Why would you not optimize the way we organize people? And this is the work that you do, which I, I'm very excited about, right? So if we're going to work together, if we're going to cooperate, if we're going to form partnerships to work together, we'd like to do that as effectively as possible. And as we talked about before we went on air, the nice thing about neuroscience is that most brains work the same way. So almost always our brains work the same way. So if we understand the underlying uh, brain uh, structure that tells me that I want to work for these individuals, um, I want to cooperate with them, then I can. I have a general a set of general rules. It doesn't just apply to GE or um, or uh, whatever Google. It applies everywhere. And as you know, that the Trust Factor book starts with me running an organizational neuroscience experiment in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea in order to understand, is the, are these factors universal? And the answer, short answer is yes. So I literally traveled all around, uh, all around the world to, uh, to really identify these factors. And I should say, can I use one bad word? Is that possible? Absolutely. So the, the most important word in my view in science is the word bullshit. So science is about getting rid of bullshit, right? And so how do you do that? You do these experiments over and over and over. You measure things different ways. You measure brain activity different ways. You go to different populations like Papua New Guinea. And so, uh, yeah, so this work has been through the mill. So, you know, it was 10 years before I wrote the book. Um, and, and really excited for me because I work, you know, normally at small scale, running experiments, working with psychiatric patients um, to build a work with organizations in which changes improve the work lives for thousands or tens of thousands of people. That's super fun, super exciting. So really great uh, for me to be able to do this. Awesome. Well, I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about the importance of being trusting if you want to be trusted. Is, is there, do we, do we need to be willing to give trust if we expect to receive it? Such a good question. Exactly right. In fact, that's the way this signaling molecule oxytocin works. If I show that I'm uh, likely to be trustworthy, I'm safe, then your brain will make oxytocin. It'll motivate you to cooperate with me. So someone has to start this. So you've got to show that you're willing to be trustworthy. You're willing to put effort into this, this uh, cooperative relationship. If you're not, then the, the virtuous cycle is not going to start. So someone's got to step up and, and get this ball rolling. Um, and by the way, it also means that occasionally we'll have breaches, right? So you, I trust you to do something and you, for whatever reason, don't follow through. So how, how should I deal with that? Well, you know, your, the brain is, is optimizing a millisecond frequency, trying to adapt to your environment. The rule in neuroscience is inconsistency, not consistency. I would expect that if you're tired, you're hungry, you're a kid at the flu all night, you haven't slept, you're going to behave differently. That's okay. So if we think of, you know, building relationships, building partnerships, there's kind of a zero-one variable. So positive interaction, code that as a one. Negative or neutral, code that as a zero. I'm going to get a, hopefully, in a high-trust organization, a lot, a, lot, a lot of ones, and the occasional zero. We shouldn't overweight the zero, right? So I think a real takeaway from the neuroscience is that no one's going to be perfect. Your spouse is not perfect. Your kids are not perfect. Why would you expect your work colleagues to be perfect 
you've got to give people a break. Doesn't mean they're a bad person. It could really, in general, what we find in experiments is that it's a good person having a bad day. For example, super stressed out, super tired, whatever. Well, how does how does emotional intelligence play into to trust? And I guess specifically with with empathy, it seems that over the last several years we're hearing more and more people talking about uh, the importance of of empathy and, and kind of understanding that EQ is just as important as IQ uh, whenever you're talking about getting performance out of organizations and, and frankly, teams and, and partnerships. Right. Another great question. So one of these eight foundations for organizational trust we call caring, which is really building relationships with others. So how do I do that? I actually have to care about you, not you as a piece of human capital, a term I really hate, that means you're a machine. You as a human being, right? If you're a human being, we can talk about professional goals. We can go have a beer. If I'm your boss and we have a beer after work, believe me, you're still aware that I write the checks, right? There's, there's no confusion on that. So it's actually um, uh, building relationships intentionally. So companies uh, like Google, like uh, Zappos, like Herman Miller create spaces and create opportunities for people that get to know each other outside of work because it makes work more effective, right? So um, you suggested, uh, I mean, you read my book, so you know the answer, but you suggested something that's really important, which is how does oxytocin uh, sustain cooperative relationships? Once my brain makes oxytocin, it increases my sense of empathy. So it, it's a direct neurochemical pathway towards EQ. That is, if I'm in a safe environment, if I feel comfortable, if I'm in a high trust organization, I more easily understand what you're feeling, that makes me a much more effective collaborator with you because I might be able to cognitively forecast, well, this is why Mark wants to do this thing. But if I have that emotional empathy component, I understand why it's important to you. And the cool thing about oxytocin is that it motivates us to work on others' behalf. Well, that sounds like a, a really effective collaborative organization, right? High empathy, people helping each other out. So a, a great, and lots of examples of the book, as you know, but one of my favorites is the uh, design company in California, IDEO. Various companies uh, made the original Apple mouse and, and lots of other really cool designs. And they actually evaluate their employees on how effectively they're helping other people, right? That's part of your performance evaluation. Are you a good partner? Are you taking time? And a study uh, out of Harvard Business School showed that at IDEO, in, uh, engineers, who help each other more are actually more productive in their own work. Why? Because if I need something from Mark, I can call him up because I've helped you five times. Hey, Mark, I'm stuck in this thing. Oh, boom, I'll be right over, Paul. Sure, I can take care of that. Right? So this is this really nice, effective, smooth organization. So again, think of trust as, as reducing frictions, right? There's always frictions when you have humans. High trust organizations, boom, things are going. And again, the occasional bad behavior, breach of trust, not a big deal. I've had 100 interactions with you. You've always been great. One time you're cranky or you don't want to help me. All right, no big deal. Well, that's, that's kind of a perfect segue into another question I want to ask you. And that is, you know, a lot of times it seems that we're all super busy uh, at work, so many things that we're trying to get knocked out. And a lot of managers and leaders see the value of team meetings as just pounding on work. And, and not really, they don't see the value of relationship building, of interacting with each other. I'd love to, to, to have you just chat a little bit about truly the importance of building relationships, because I know that your, your research has shown that it improves performance, I mean, empirically. 
Absolutely. In experiments, in the lab, in organizations, there's, there's um, lots of evidence for this. So the, the most famous one that people know is uh, when Steve Jobs was designing the new building for Pixar, he wanted one entrance and one set of bathrooms. So they gave him the one entrance, they gave him more than one set of bathrooms. His ideas have these collisions. I want to bump into people. Uh, Zappos online shoe and clothing seller uh, in Las Vegas, a longtime uh, consultant client. And by the way, very kindly let me put a bunch of their data in my book. Uh, same thing, they have one entrance, they have all these alcoves, they have wireless, right, uh, secure wireless in the building. So if you want to get away from your desk and sit in this alcove with a little snack area, outdoor cafe and all that, it's all there because they want to have places where people congregate and they get to know each other. Zappos even had, uh, I don't do this anymore, but in the beginning when they were uh, growing rapidly, a lot of new people were around. And so when you started your computer in the morning, it would say, here's a picture. This guy's name is Mark. He works in marketing. Go talk to him. And if you find out his birthday, enter it here. And that gives you points towards end of the year swag from us. And so they forced you to go talk to new people, right? So um, you, uh, Facebook does this. Google does this. Facebook has, um, uh, for their uh, uh, software engineers, once a month, you can go work in a different group. Just go somewhere else. Once a month. Right, so it's not exactly 20% time, but kind of like that. Maybe you've heard this uh, AI group is doing cool stuff and you want to figure out what they're doing. If that gives you more energy, think of the trust of that for Facebook. I'm gonna, I'm gonna burn a day of your time. Now you're still gonna work on that other group, but you're not gonna be as effective as where you are now. I'm gonna pay you to explore whether there's a better group for you to work with. That's amazing because these guys are all high performers. I wanna keep them there. So. That's the thing about high-performance organizations. For high performers, they want autonomy. They want a chance to grow. They want a chance to innovate, try new things. In high-trust organizations, all those things happen at a much higher rate. So if you micromanage people, tell me you have to do this, high performers, can have, they have options, believe me. And what's the unemployment rate now, 3.6%? Everybody has options. Don't lose the high performers. Create a great environment. And by the way, not very costly, right? So you can bribe people with money, the golden cage, or you can create an amazing environment where they can flourish and the job tenure is much longer, job satisfaction is higher in high trust organizations. Yeah, I love that. So Paul, I'd love to talk about partnerships specifically and building trust within partnerships. So, you know, with the world that we live in, strategic partnerships, I mean, we're dealing with organizations outside of our company. I mean, other companies that we're trying to, to be a part of our team where we can leverage their assets and their capabilities and their knowledge. What are some recommendations that you have of ways that we can build trust faster and deeper with these other organizations? I know you talk a lot about uh, the importance of purpose and having aligned purpose as well. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Part of this is, uh, I, I love this. It's like a hack, right? So how do I hack this system to get more out of it? So um, the first is, uh, as you said earlier, um, if you're just going to look at the numbers, this is why we have a strategic partnership. We're going to make money. We're going to make money. Um, great. We all like, more money is better than less money, for sure. But the second is this kind of alignment. Um, I always think of partnerships as, can I spend 60 hours a week with these guys? It's a pretty high bar, actually. So how do I find out about that? Let's spend some time together. And the way the brain works is that these um, uh, brain systems to process social information are a little bit lazy. All the brain's lazy. It takes so much energy to run your brain, it just wants to idle. So you can provoke that by doing something that's active or that requires you to work together. Go whitewater rafting, take a hike, uh, 
go, uh, you know, skydiving, whatever that is, you're going to find out a lot about people and if you can work with them, if you see them in a bit of a stressful situation. So you can actually kind of jumpstart this, this method. Um, and the second is this kind of alignment purposes, why anyone should care why what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, excuse me. Um, and so what we see a lot of times in, in partnerships is that this, this misalignment is not that I don't want to work with you and you don't want to work with me is that we actually have different goals, right? Um, so, uh, Peter Drucker, who was on the faculty around with me for 10 years before he passed away, uh, very famously said, you know, every organization's purpose is to improve people's lives. So how organizations do that is different by organization. But we think about why you're paying for our good or services because you're making me better somehow. Right, so let's embrace that purpose. But when those align, it's much easier to form partnerships. Well, Paul, I'd like to ask you. So, as, as business and technology just continue to evolve, and you talk about you know face to face and the importance and power of, of physically being face to face. Well, now we have this technology, like you and I are using right now. We're you know over a thousand miles away from each other, but we're using video and have the ability to connect that way. So many. You know, whenever I started my career, it was a bunch of audio conferences, you know, conference bridges that we would jump on. Is it valuable or would you recommend that when people are a thousand miles away working on, uh, you know, their partnerships, is it valuable to have video conference as opposed to just audio? Great question. So we actually have run experiments on that. So um, what we have found, um, number one, is that any connection that's authentic, that's valuable, that's genuine, will cause the brain to reduce oxytocin, increase empathy, um, motivate people to trust each other. So um, a positive interaction is a positive interaction no matter what medium it comes through. Um, having said that, uh, the, the greater the information, the bigger the bandwidth that interaction, the more oxytocin is released. So if we compare us talking via audio, positive interaction, get some oxytocin release, add video, more oxytocin release, in person more. So I think for the world we live in with, uh, you know, we work and shared spaces and, and everyone traveling, um, you still need to have face-to-face -face time. So this video conference is not bad. You, you, can, you can see my face, you can see the emotions, you can hear the change in my voice patterns and um, all my, I'm gesturing a lot, so that's maybe telling you something. Um, so just think about this as bandwidth. So I think um, for, for mobile workers, for people who telecommute, you know, once a month, I think minimum, you ought to see your colleagues. So that's a, a pretty good rule of thumb. Okay. So, Paul, I want to also ask, with, um, you know, working with folks, especially in this world of strategic partnerships, a lot of times we're working on some highly innovative initiatives, right? We're trying to, comp to create this competitive advantage and stuff's going to go wrong. I mean, we're trying to really push the envelope. From a trust perspective, what's the best way to handle a situation when we let people down? I mean, we just, we said we were going to come through, we're going to have it done by Friday afternoon, and we just didn't. What's the best way to address that? Really straightforward. You got to own it, right? So can't top it off. Oh, my uh, software developer had the flu. He couldn't show. No, you know what? I'm the boss. I made a promise to you. I thought I could fulfill it. I didn't. So let me talk about how we're going to fix it. So we're going to get some guys to work overtime this weekend. We're going to do our level best to get this thing done by Monday. We thought we could do this, but you never know when you're, say, coding or developing something new. Um, so I think it's really... Um, you know, important to own that space. And we see that, uh, uh, lots of examples in the book. When we see that, people go, oh yeah, of course. Right, when you go, well, you know, we thought we could, the server was slow, blah, blah, blah. I want an excuse. We've made a promise we couldn't deliver. We're gonna fix that as quickly as possible. Here's our plan to do it. So very, very concrete. 
Uh, it's a great book by uh, this uh, former Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, called Extreme Ownership. And he says in that, if you're the boss and something goes south, you're responsible. Don't blame someone else. Oh, no, Mark didn't follow through. Bullshit. You either do it or you don't do it. If you made a promise, it's your promise. It's your team. You're the leader. You're going to make this happen. you got to own it. And then people understand that, right? Don't be a weasel. Uh, Paul, how, did, how can we tell or can we tell if somebody is trustworthy? Or if we're going to do a deal with somebody, high stakes, yes. And we do that all the time. Single source it's, sort of a thing. What is I think of this zero one coding I talked about? Yeah, sorry, we had a latency there. So I think of this zero one coding, right? So I'm kind of, you know, we do this naturally. I'm sort of keeping track with my nice, uh, good long term memory about those possible interactions. And so part of it is, is reading people, right? So we get better at that as, as we age generally. Some people are better than others. Um, but also, you can give them um, things to do that we can test that trustworthiness. So I may not want to give you my, uh, you know, million dollar project. I might want to give you a $10,000 project and see what you do with that, right? So it's really think about building trust step by step. So this famous uh, Russian proverb is trust but verify. I think that is exactly right. And then again, if I've had, you know, 45 positive interactions and you got one breach, you're like, okay, you know, 45 versus one, eh, yeah, I understand that. Again, hopefully that person will take ownership of it, tell me why it happened, tell me how they're going to fix it. But uh, really being open. So open communication, very important. Awesome. One last question for you, Paul, before we let you go. So in the book, you talk about joy equals trust times purpose. Right. Tell us about that. What Where the heck is from? that? Right. So, so we, we both have training in economics. So we talked about this. Um, so the standard view in economics is that uh, work, uh, as the kids say, work sucks. So the term in economics is work provides disutility, disutility of labor. Um, but most of us spend a huge amount of time putting effort into work. We talk about work outside of work. We have friends from work. Um, and so the neuroscience um, of trust shows that high trust, high purpose organizations predicts that those people will actually enjoy their jobs. They dig it. So I'm doing something important, purpose, with people I can rely on, trust. And that's exactly what the data show, is that people in these high trust, high purpose organizations dig what they do. And trust and purpose reinforce each other neurologically. So now, um, even on a hard day, I understand that I'm doing something that's really important for our customers, important for our employees to continue to perform well. Um, and so I think, again, having that, um, those kind of leverage points substantially improves performance. I lied to you, Paul. One more thing I want you to verify sure, for me. me. So, so many people try to, uh, and even as, as economists, you know, we say people respond to incentives. So it's all about money. We want to get more out of you. We throw more money at you. That's not the key, is it? It's not the key. In fact, um, many studies from my lab and others show that if we monetize every behavior, then you stop, you know, you only do it for the treat. This is like training a dog. If I train with treats all the time, you give me the treat. I'm not going to work, right? But if instead we say as social creatures, this is important for our community, community of employees at this company. This is important for the larger world, the sense of purpose. People work really hard. So, so think about kind of managing by fear versus managing by love. Fear-based, fear is a really good short-term motivator, but people will give up after a while. Like, you, you know, I don't think anymore you can beat employees. I think that's, that's the law now. So if I can't, you know, ramp up the fear, then what else? Well, you'll die for someone you love. So why not build this, this uh, pathway where we all care about each other, we trust each other. Again, there's some, you know, some people are going to fail once in a while. That's okay. But if we build a culture of high trust, high purpose, then those people depend on me, and I want to be dependable. I want to be a member of that community. 
Um, and so that's exactly what we see neurologically, and that's exactly what we see when we look at organizations. Man, that's awesome. Paul, man, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you sharing your insights with us, and thanks for the research that you're doing. I mean, I, I, I know that I really enjoy it, and it's, it's making a difference for our organization and the people that we work with. Well, here's one more tip, and I'm going to use it uh, with you, which is I try to end every conversation with the word service. So if you want to be a good, trustworthy partner to somebody, you need to be of service to them. So, Mark, I'm happy to be of service to you. I hope that I can serve you sometime in the future. And, uh, and I think you do owe me a craft beer in Kansas City next time I'm there. So um, let's be of service to each other. When you're of service, you're valuable. And when you're of service consistently, you're trustworthy. And that's someone I want to be a partner with. I love it. Thanks, sir. Partnernomics Podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit Partnernomics.com.